Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. So, welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. And we're here in Belfast. But I wanted to start with uh, one question. So, what do you make of the current crisis befalling the CBI? What does it say about corporate Britain? Is there a better way for the business community to be represented and have their voices heard in Westminster and Whitehall? Is that a question about Tony Danker's support of Labour, or has he done something else? Oh, uh, this is just the classic Tory party negative campaign, sort of sinister smeary that you build it. No, I think, I'm sure this is about the allegations against Tony Danker, the head of the CBI, that have led to him departing his post. So I'm, I'm guessing that's quite serious. And then whether there is something deeper about the culture there or not, I don't know. I'm a very, very close friend of his predecessor, Carolyn Fairburn. Oh, I think she's great. And she was one of the few people who was prepared to make really constructive, detailed proposals on a soft Brexit, which I thought was absolutely vital. And businesses' failure to do that, and I really think business did fail to do that. I kept saying, you guys have got so much riding on Brexit. You've got untold resources. You could be spending millions funding think tanks and campaigns to come up with a really constructive proposal on a good compromise customs union Brexit. And none of them did it. They either privately backed second referendum remain, or they just kept quiet. And that was terrible, I felt, for someone like me trying to campaign for something more like a customs union Brexit, mm. that there were no voices out there really producing the papers. Boy, the ERG had them. They had Brady arrangements and Malthouse compromises and Sangera agreements and all these weird <laughs> things that we've now fortunately forgotten being produced a lot of them by Tufton Street think tanks. But Carolyn Fairburn was one of the few people prepared to engage in trying to produce concrete details on what a better Brexit deal would look mm. like. But even she didn't actually produce what we wanted, which was the 500-page chapter and verse campaign, which would allow us mm. to go to The Guardian and The Times and others saying, this is what it looks like and get the well, MPs I'm, behind I'm, it. I'm, I'm very pleased that you fell into my little jab there of turning a question that you were putting to me, trying to suggest that anybody who supported the Labour Party was involved in some sort of terrible sex scandal. Uh, into a discussion of how brilliant my very good friend Carolyn, <laughs> Carolyn Fairbairn is. Thank you very much for that, Rory. Now, moving on. Alison Golding, is Rishi Sunak really any better than Trussell Johnson? The scale of government financial losses during his watch as Chancellor and PM, his failure to stop utility profits going abroad rather than to the UK infrastructure, and his deliberately leaving the NHS to rot, all say not to me. Telenor, could Rory explain why he is a fan of Rishi Sunak? I applaud his efforts on Northern Ireland EU relations, but could never be a fan of anyone who enables and reinforces Swallow Braverman on asylum seekers. Brackets, Rory is correct on Labour's attack ads. So we can park that. Uh, we've done, we, we talked a lot about that last week. But 
Fair question, isn't it? I mean, he's not, his record well, is just, so not I, great. I think that the first question is a good question. And obviously people who are strongly Labour are going to be against Rishi Sunak. And absolutely, I do agree that I find Swella Bravman's stuff around boats and asylum in Rwanda deeply, deeply uncomfortable. And one of the things that has made me uncomfortable with Rishi Sunak is the fact that Swella Bravman is Home Secretary. I hope he's now going to move to get rid of her as he becomes more confident in his position. And I think that's something that people should judge him and, on. And, and hold on, you, so you said on the main podcast that you, you think that might happen. Is that, is that wishful thinking? Well, it's to do with, and this is this is something we've talked about a lot, and we talk particularly about here in Northern Ireland, which is how much you can say no to your party and confront your party. And that's the genius of politics, isn't it? Because you can be like Boris Johnson, just feeding the very worst instincts of your party all the time. Or you can be, I'm afraid, to be honest, like Theresa May, ending up very isolated from your party, not really bringing them with you. And it's very difficult to judge from the outside how tough you could be. But I think, and this is something you've, I can give you credit for, you've been pushing Rishi Sunak on being tougher and more confrontational towards Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. And I think we'd like to see it with Suella Bravman. On the plus side, very quickly, I'm very struck by the fact that ministers I admire and cabinet ministers too, just say to me consistently, he is the first grown up prime minister they've seen in a long time. And what they're talking about there is number 10 is run much, much more professionally and thoughtfully he really masters his briefs, but he's not, strangely, like Gordon Brown, and some people would have accused Theresa May of this, somebody who masters his briefs but doesn't delegate. He's somebody who masters his briefs and seems to be able to allow people mm. to get on with their job. First time we've had a prime minister, I think, that I've felt for a long time where the people who work with him closely really admire him. But he is, I guess, in the end, still quite private, quite introverted. And he's still very much a conservative, you know, more on the right, the conservative party than I was, a Brexiteer, more comfortable leaning in on the immigration boats thing than I would have been doing. But I think a huge improvement on those trusts and Boris Johnson. Mm. Now we've got a very good question here, which I think could be an absolutely brilliant idea from somebody with a brilliant name as well. Laurie, the anti-growth collator. I think this is a point about Liz Truss. Could we get a one-off special podcast where Shoshana and Fiona discuss Rory and Alistair? Blaine, do you think they want to do that? I think Fiona would love it. Really? Mm. And do you think anyone wants to listen to that? I think they might. Fiona's had quite a few offers to sort of write books about the hell of living with me. Okay, well, we could pitch it at them. I mean, they're both definitely more interesting than us. I think, think we so? ha have to accept that probably the podcast in the future would be done by them as soon okay, as people so hear them. It's a bad idea because it would put us out of a job. I think. Okay, it, so Laurie, it's not happening. <laughs> Go back to your little fantasies about Liz Truss and her anti growth. I, I think it's quite, quite threatening. I think they're both considerably more appealing personalities than we are, but we could try it. Paddy, who would be the presumptive Democrat nominee if not Biden, comma, Alistair? I just don't know. Uh, I mean, people talk about Gavin Newsom, but I just don't know. I think, I, I think, I think that I think people have got it used to it. Biden's going to go. Biden's going to run for it. And I can see people, Rory is shaking his head and looking rather alarmed. No, I think he's. I think he's going to go for it. And I, and I don't think it's as you said before. There are people in the Democrats who'd think, "Oh God, no, please, no, he's too old." But at the same time, I think if Trump does get the nomination, I think Biden might be the guy to beat him. Um, it's a, it's a no, big decision though. It's a huge decision I mean, Can you imagine how stupid we'd feel if Trump defeated Biden And how we'd all be beating ourselves up And saying uh, we sure, should have found someone sure. else yeah. look, did, did, Let's ask, you, ask yourself this When he was in Ireland Did he look like a guy who was on a victory 
lap of departure. It didn't to me look like a guy who was starting out a new campaign. So I think I think it's going to be Joe, and I hope to God he wins. Now, Rory, I'm going to ask you this one. Yeah, James Thomas. Rory, knowing what you know now, if you had your time again, would you vote for the chaos of Ed Miliband in 2015? Ed Miliband? No, I would vote for David Miliband, possibly. I would not vote for Ed Miliband. Marty, who was the funniest person you met in politics? I'll tell you what popped into my head straight away with that question was Tony Banks. Do you remember Tony Banks? Yeah. I'll tell you one of the reasons I love Tony Banks. He was a massive, massive Chelsea fan. (laughs) That's not something I loved about him. But he was the MP for West Ham. And he never pretended to be any... He used to walk around his West Ham constituency with a Chelsea scarf on, you know, which <laughs> some, some people get on their heads kicked And one of my favourite memories of, of, of Tony... And here's a shout-out for a Tory, by the way. At Tony Banks's funeral, David Meller made one of the best funeral orations I've ever known heard. for his Chelsea support, but you're telling me did not wear a Chelsea strip in bed. I don't want to talk about Conservative MPs in bed, but I think it's well recognised that that story about David Mellor wearing a Chelsea shirt in bed while having sex with somebody called Antonia de Sancha, I think her name was. Who was, who was the girlfriend of the England manager? No? What are you talking about? Is that not right? <laughs> Sven? It wasn't Sven's girlfriend, no. No, you're talking about, you're talking about Nancy the Lollio. Uh, they weren't the same at all. I mean, this is staying in. This is staying in. <laughs> so, wait, wait, anyway, so, 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 tell me, we, so I have a vague memory of scandals about Sven in bed. Talk about Tony and, Banks. And scandals, scandals about David Miller in bed, but they weren't no, the same scandal There were, there were a lot about scandals involving Sven. In fact, here's a little confession for you, Rory. His most famous scandal was a, an affair with Ulrika Johnson, Swede. Yes. Sven's a Swede, and yes. I introduced them. Oh, my goodness. At, it gets worse, at a party for Richard Desmond's birthday. This is the sort of thing I had to go to in the olden days. And Fiona was giving me a very, very big Can we just remind listeners, Richard Desmond uh, made his name as a publisher of porn, right? He actually owns the copyright to some of my work. That's right. And <laughs> and then went on, now owns the Daily Express. No, he sold them now, I think. But he's uh, basically a media guy, and he had this birthday party. And I was talking to Ulrika, and... Fiona was giving me a bit of a BDI. And, and also he brought down Robert Jenrick, didn't he? He was the guy who sat next to Robert Jenrick to get a planning oh, permission for a building. Oh, he didn't bring him down, did he? Jenrick, I think, in the end resigned because of did this. He? He, yeah, Desmond had paid money, sat next to him at an event. This is going so far from Tony Banks. Tony, RIP, we're going to come back to you eventually. What's, and, a, what's a joke? Have you got a joke from Tony so, Banks? Wait a minute. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I said to Ulrika, I saw Sven arrive and I said, have you met the other famous Swede in London? <laughs> And I introduced them, and then a few weeks later, it's all over the front pages. We're having a bloody affair. Was that that was the Sun again? I think it might have been the Mirror, but I can't and remember. And phone tapping? No. Well, around that period, very good point. Very, very, very good point. Very good point. Anyway, so Tony, so David Mellor made this fantastic speech about Tony Banks, which is interesting if you think about it. David Mellor was a Tory MP, and he was invited to do. One of the main speeches, I think Margaret Beckett spoke and possibly Sadiq Khan. I can't remember. But anyway, but David Mellor made an absolutely brilliant speech. But my, my favorite memory of Tony Banks was at a Labour Party conference where 
we were working on Tony Blair's speech for the conference and I got a message on, this is back in the days of pages, and I got a message saying that Tony Banks had caused this terrible stir because Tony Banks had done this speech where he said Labour were definitely going to win the election because William Hague was the Tory leader at the time and he said, nobody's ever going to elect a fetus as Prime Minister, which was... Truly horrible on one level, but when we sort of, so we phoned Tony and said, Tony, what the hell is this? And he said, Oh, God, you know, I just got a bit carried away. What, am I going to get bollocks? Am I going to get bollocked? So and the, the thing is, he was, he just one of those guys, you couldn't bollock him because he was so funny. So that's my, who's your funniest MP? Um, actually, I thought Labour MPs were, were well, generally funnier. Well, they're generally better people. Well, funnier, I was on. What do you make of leak politics? Alexander Kay. This week, again, has been all about a new wave of leaks. What do you make of leak politics and how the unintentional or apparently unintentional leaks impact modern politics? Hmm. Well, this, of course, relates to this American stuff, which does seem amazing that it's on. I think we're on Discord, aren't we? You can get onto Discord to talk about the rest of his politics. So this guy has got access to stuff relating to some pretty sensitive material. And he's discussing it with his mates on on Discord. And he's now been taken. And so whether it whether it's part of some sophisticated intelligence operation against the Americans or not, I don't know. So he's being described as a leak. But I think when people think of what we mean by leaks, I think the word gets used way too much. A leak to me is when you're in possession of usually a paper or a piece of information which you should not necessarily be going into the public domain and you put it into the public domain for your own political purposes. Yeah, and often, I mean, that was something that comes across in your diaries, isn't it? Suspicions that Damien McBride and Gordon Brown were leaking things to the press to try to bolster Gordon Brown's position against Tony Blair. Yeah, but that, but, but sometimes what the press would sometimes do is have a conversation with a guy in a pub, uh, who sort of shrugs a shoulder or raises an eyebrow in a different sort of way or says a few sort of choice words. And that becomes viewed as, you know, leaking briefing against when sometimes it's just journalists kind of hoovering up information. I think when well, you also see, I mean, also, I'm, I felt this with my colleagues that it's clearly a basic bit of self promotion. One of the reasons that Liz Truss made it to be very briefly prime minister is she was very well known, along with Gavin Williamson and others, mm. for being one of the first to come out of Cabinet, which is meant to be confidential, well, internal conversations I mean, I and hear, talk I hear, to the media. I hear yeah. from journalists that they used to get messages during the Cabinet of who was saying what. And, and it was a very odd practice because it was something that somebody like me or David Gork, who were kind of more boring Cabinet ministers, didn't do. But it was clearly an absolute necessity for the political career of certain kinds of people. I remember when journalists used to take me out as a young politician – how disappointed they'd get if I didn't say anything interesting, and how those people who did say interesting things, Pretty Patel, Liz Truss, found their careers rocketing up because mm. the media developed them and convinced the prime ministers of the day that these were the great media stars. So there's a sort of slightly strange um, relationship oh, well, between just the two. Related to that, I would say that one of the reasons that Michael Gove has been such a survivor within Conservative Party politics is he's very good at at making sure the press reflect him in a reasonable light. I mean, Fiona, my Fiona, has a, a sort of running joke about, you know, whenever she reads a story about Michael Gove in the Times or the Sunday Times, he basically says, why don't they just put his byline on it? You know, the, the Prime Minister's thinking of asking Michael Gove to take over X problem, Y problem, or some amazing observation did, did Michael you Gove have, made. Did you cabinet. have ministers who tried to do that to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown? Sort oh, of, yeah. 
Oh, yeah. I don't think... I think, by and large, we run a pretty tight ship. But, but if you read an article saying Prime Minister thinking of appointing X or Y to run this, your suspicion would have been that that minister was briefing out and trying to get their name in the press. Or somebody else is doing it so that they'd hope that you'd think that. So in the end, it's best to just ignore it. And unless does it, it becomes does, a problem. Does it, does it, I mean, how does it work? Can it sometimes help an MP to get stories out that sort of, or does it backfire and just make everyone a number 10 think you're a dick? I think if somebody overdoes it, one of Tony's strengths, I think, as a leader, he, he wanted other big figures around. He wanted people to kind of have a profile and get noticed for the right reasons. Um, but I think if people start to do what I kind of, the puff piece stuff, I think if, I think we'd find that pretty tiresome. Look, there's no doubt, particularly in the modern age, getting noticed, having a profile. So you said recently, for example, we were asked at a show, you know, who do you think on the Labour side should be, if not Keir Starmer, would be leader? And you said Peter Kyle, yeah. who's here yeah. at the moment because yeah. he's the Shadow Secretary of State of Northern Ireland. Now, I think Peter's terrific, but Peter doesn't have a big profile. You need a big profile to be viewed as and therefore to be one of the big beasts. And so interestingly, people like Jess Phillips or Stella Creasy, who've had more social media exposure, can end up in a stronger position than Peter Carr. Although Peter is in the shadow cabinet. So that says to me that, you know, so, so sometimes it can go, it can go either way. And ultimately, these are, we, we still operate in a system that's essentially the patronage this, of the leader. I remember leader. this, though, with David Gork, because I thought he would have made a brilliant, brilliant prime minister. And yet the only response I got out of colleagues when I was trying to canvass for him when Theresa May was stepping down was he just doesn't have enough of a public profile. You know, no, nobody's heard of him. But it goes back, this goes back to our, our argument about the ads, is that... In our media world, I'm afraid, you either get noticed because you are, people recognise a sort of supreme talent. I would put Tony and Gordon in that category. Johnson got noticed because he'd built, very carefully built his own profile up he, under he for a years. Big celebrity, long he was before a celebrity, celebrity yeah, politician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then obviously Sunak now is incredibly high profile because he's become the prime minister. I would argue that it's possible to make the case that Rishi Sunak's elevation to become prime minister actually goes against some of that stuff. And I think that's a good thing. But I think it's, I can see why somebody like David Gork, because he didn't cause scandals. He didn't say stupid things that had people talking about him on the phones. He didn't polarize. He didn't go out there and try to kind of, you know, say, look at me. He tried to be a serious bloke doing a serious job. And I'm, I think that there is a part of our politics that doesn't take those people seriously enough. All right, Roy, loads more questions to come. Take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Australian referendum. Here in Australia, our Labour Prime Minister planning to hold a referendum to change the constitution and in it acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Conservative Party backed the no vote and as such, I can't see it getting up as a double majority is required. What will be the damage to our reputation if the no gets up? So I think Frank is more on the Labour side on this. And then Helen would be interested to hear your view on the upcoming referendum in Australia to amend our constitution to give First Nations people and Torres Strait Islanders a formal voice to Parliament. There's a vigorous debate in Australia about this proposed change to our constitution among both Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. Any Mm. thoughts? Well, I 
as you know, I'm a regular subscriber to The Conversation. And because of that, I've always been sent, even though I've never asked for it, but I really enjoy it, I get sent The Conversation Australian version. And this week, <laughs> I didn't know this was coming up. Uh, this week, I listened as I was walking here yesterday to a podcast on The Conversation with somebody called Michelle Grattan. G-R-A-T-T-A-N, who was interviewing a well-known indigenous campaigner and writer about this issue. And I found it, I think I sent you a message saying that if, if, you know, this might be an interesting one for discussion, but it's a very difficult debate to get your head around because it strikes me, all, all that it seems to be is that Albanese is trying to say, we need to put into our constitution something that gives proper recognition to the voice of the indigenous population, which seems so blindingly yeah. obvious. What's wrong with that? But. As often happens in referendums, people are sort of taking it to other places and developing arguments that look kind of slightly off to one side. On the question about what damage it does, I think it would be quite damaging to their reputation. But presumably constitutionally, or I suppose philosophically, the challenge is that generally liberal democracies are very, very blind. Their fundamental theory is total equality, one person, one vote, no special treatment. And so we're always dealing with this tension between majority representation and protection of minority rights mm. and the question of how much you can lean into minority rights and in this case on the basis of ethnicity and history and to what extent special treatment is the correct way to think about discrimination and injustice or not mm. well i think i think it's something we should sort of dig into and, and and come back to because I, I was fascinated listening to the, the conversation but at the end of it i was i was slightly left thinking i can't understand why this is proving to be such a contentious issue. So it's one that maybe we should, we should come back to when I've done a bit more research. Good. What small wins have you had recently? This is from Dom Furtado. Life these days, says Dom, is made up of small wins. For me, a small win is covering the daily hate mail in the newsagents with other newspapers to inconvenience the little Englanders desperate for their daily hit of small boatry. What small wins have you had recently? I do that. I used to do that at airports all the time. You just hide the Daily Mail. Well, it used to really annoy me about British Airways that the only paper that they have, they sometimes have the FT, but basically you'd gone to the British Airways and they just have stacks of the Daily Mail. So I used to go to, like, I'll go to the Lufthansa and I'll find a load of Die Welt and Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung and put them in my bag and carry them off down and cover the Daily Mail in the, in the, um, is that childish, Roy? You're looking at me like it's a bit childish. Good, it's good, yeah. Well, you've actually made me think, you've, I've made me think about an answer to a previous question. Funniest MP. Paddy Ashdown, I thought was pretty funny. His one to me, which exposed my vanity and ludicrousness, he, he gave me a copy of his book. And I looked at it and I opened it up and there was no inscription on the front. I thought it was a bit odd. And then I got to the index and around my name, he'd written, I thought you'd look here first, love Paddy. <laughs> <laughs> what's the, 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 the other great index story, of course, is what's the one, Gore Vidal? He put somebody in the index, but then he wasn't in the book. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's good enough. Final one for you. Mark Grabowski. If you both had to sing karaoke, what song would you choose? What's your karaoke song? Have you been watching Succession in Sydney? I realise I owe you an apology. I was a bit snooty about Brian Cox, who incidentally was quite nice about me, so I was feeling a bit guilty about that. Sean was telling me off about that. It is an extraordinary performance in yes. Succession. I, I really, I mean, completely blows me away. There's, there's a question we had this week, actually, from somebody on who our favorite actor is. The stage of Stockwell asks mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, my favorite, I like Brian. I my like favorite actor, I guess, is Mark Rylance, who mm-hmm. I think is extraordinary mm-hmm. from Wolf Hall and an incredible Hamlet performance of the Globe. But my goodness, Brian Cox. Yeah. That is quite a performance, isn't it? I am um, I, mentioning the conversation. Somebody wrote a piece. I'm not angry. I'm a bit angry. But somebody wrote a piece, the headline of which gave the ending away. Oh. Yeah. Of succession. Yeah. With Mark Grabowski, if you both had to sing karaoke, what song would you choose? And don't ask me because I don't sing. It would either be Winner Takes It All in three languages simultaneously. Lovely. Which I can do. Okay, good. I can do the French and the German in between the next line coming out. I've done that before. Yeah, very good. And I think it might. And the other one that comes very, 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 very close is Are You Lonesome Tonight? And I do the Elvis version where he laughs. Do you know that one? All right. So which one are you going to do for us to close the question time? Which one of the two? I think it's got to be How You Lonesome. Okay, go on then. No, I'm not going to say it. We need the laugh. Just a little bit with the no, laugh. No, because I can't do Elvis's laugh. Although I will say, Elvis's laugh, people can check this out, Elvis's laugh is almost identical to Bill Clinton's. Really? Which is quite and, interesting. And to your impression of Bill Clinton. No, my, my, person, my impression of Bill I can do quite good Clinton. I'm not doing it. I can do, I can sing quite well Elvis. The other one I think is Johnny Cash song. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I like that one as well. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. I, I love You've got to sing something. John, John, well, Johnny Cash's performance in Folsom Prison, if we're mm. looking for a cultural oh. reference to oh. drive people out, absolutely extraordinary. You can hear the prisoners in the background. Yeah. And that's a great movie, actually. We've, yeah. we've recommended the Elvis movie, the Johnny Cash movie with Joachim Phoenix, who does a really a pretty cool Johnny Cash oh. impression. You can actually get, oh. get a tape of him singing all Johnny Cash's songs. Yeah, the guy doing Elvis as well. Film is Walk the Line, includes a great scene set in Folsom Prison with the, with the prisoners um, raging as he sings. What book are you reading at the moment? Oh, Ireland. I read in a single day, uh, Rory Carroll, the Ireland correspondent of The Guardian, who's written a book called Killing Thatcher. I actually think it, they could have done with a better title. That's but a pretty, book, pretty good title, isn't it? Well, the only thing is that Thatcher wasn't killed. That, that is true. But it, it, it certainly makes you wake up. It's... The re- I mean, it's very, very rare that I read a 300-page book in a day because I'm, you know, I just don't have the concentration to keep going. But I just, uh, I was lucky because I was on a train, I was on a plane, I was traveling about the place, but it was gripping. It was quite fitting in a way because I was, I was picked up at Dublin Airport to come here and I read the last 80, I was desperate to get it finished by the time we got here. So I read the last pages coming into Belfast to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And it's basically the story of the Brighton bomb, which I covered as a journalist, and then the police hunt for the bomber. Can and then what happened to my non-specialist listeners, Brighton bomb, IRA attacks, Conservative Party conference. Date. Almost kills Mrs. Thatcher. Date. Date. Go and give us the date. 84, I think. And it was 2.54.01. I've never forgotten that. 254.01. And he's, he's got some incredible accounts of the police investigation. What does 254.01 mean? Uh, 54 minutes past two in the morning. And that was Norman Tebbett's wife was killed? No, John Wakem's wife was killed and four other people. And Norman Tebbett's wife, Margaret, was paralysed. Extraordinary. But it's the story of the, of the bomber and his life and his background and, and obviously his, his work. He's, he's, there's, a, there's a lot about Jerry Adams in it who doesn't give an interview. And then there's the story of Thatcher's rise and why Thatcher took the approach to the IRA that she did. It's got the hunger strike story. But he writes it like a thriller. Look, I know the ending, right? I knew, I knew the ending of the book, but I was kind of, it's literally, you're turning the pages to see where it goes Amazing. next. Well, that's a great recommendation. Well, I've been reading Making Sense of the Troubles, A History of the Northern Ireland Conflict, David McKittrick and David McVeigh. And it's really extraordinary. I mean, to manage to write a book 
that produces something pretty close to a balanced account, given how raw and passionate the views of both sides are in all land. A hell of an achievement. They were also two of the authors on this extraordinary book, I think nearly a million million words on the the, the dead of the Troubles, Mm. following the story of every single story of everybody who was killed. Mm. We talked a little bit about the victims. So I'd recommend anyone who wants to understand the Troubles, making sense the Troubles, a history of the Northern Ireland conflict. Good. Final thing to put in the newsletter. I think it would be lovely for people, if they haven't seen it, to see the picture of Joe Biden in the office of the Irish president, Michael D. Higgins. It's one of the greatest photographs I've seen for a long time. What sort of desk policy do you operate? Are you a tidy desk person? I go for tidy. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm moderately tidy. And where I'm not tidy, everything's in quite neat piles, some distance probably. Michael D. Higgins has got an enormous desk that is just absolutely covered and obviously made no effort whatsoever to tidy it up before the president came in. It's a beautiful picture. Very good. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you. See you soon. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts.